Welcome to ACP's podcast, Inside the Lab, where we discuss anything and everything that concerns today's laboratory professionals and pathologists. My name is Dr. Loti Mulder. I'm the Director of Leadership and Empowerment at ACP, and I'm one of your hosts. Hey, everyone. My name is Kelly Swales, and I'm also one of your co-hosts. I'm an ASCP certified medical technologist, and I'm also the executive editor of journals in the publications department at ASCP. So today we're going to be talking about microbial resistance, and we have some really great guests that I'll let introduce themselves. Hi, everyone. I'm Trish Simner. I'm a clinical microbiologist and the director of the bacteriology and infectious disease sequencing laboratories at the Johns Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore, Maryland. I'm an associate professor of pathology at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, where I have a research lab that studies mechanisms of antimicrobial resistance. Thanks so much for having me. Hi all, I'm Romney Humphreys. I am a professor of pathology here at Vanderbilt University Medical Center in Nashville, Tennessee. I serve as the service line director for infectious diseases testing and also the medical director of the clinical microbiology lab. Like Trish, I'm really into susceptibility testing and all things antibiotic resistance. And um, my research lab focuses on um, similar things, resistance mechanisms and how to best detect them. I'm Lynn Bree. I'm a medical director at Brigham and Women's Hospital in clinical microbiology and molecular pathology. I also direct the Massachusetts Host Microbiome Center at the hospital and for Harvard Medical School, where one of our clinical programs is performing genomic surveillance for area hospitals, where we do a lot of work understanding what the dynamics are of vectors promoting spread and how we can use this information clinically. So thank you very much for inviting me. Looking forward to the conversation. First off, thanks everyone again for joining us. I've got just a few little housekeeping things to get out of the way before we get rolling on the questions. CME and CMLE will be available for listening to this podcast in the ASCP store. The American Society for Clinical Pathology is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education to provide continuing medical education for physicians. ASCP designates this enduring material for a maximum of one AMA PRA Category 1 credit and physicians should only claim the credit commiserate with the extent of their participation in the activity. Also, I need to say that Patricia Simner has provided expert consultations to six companies that work on antimicrobial resistance, and Lynn Bree has provided expert consultations to six companies that work on antimicrobial resistance. Romney Humphreys has provided expert consultations to seven companies that work on antimicrobial resistance. So now that that all is out of the way, my first question to you is kind of like a big, broad question. What are the biggest challenges facing the human population in regards to antimicrobial resistance today? Yeah, it's a, that's a good question. It's not an easy one, is it? No, it's not <laughs> easy. No, I mean, I think that we're realistic about it. We are sort of entering the post-antimicrobial age where a lot more of the pathogens that we deal with have acquired resistance to the more common agents. And we're finding ourselves escalating to broader and broader therapy. And unfortunately that comes along with more resistance. And so I think, you know, to my perspective anyway, one of the biggest challenges is finding our way out of this sort of loop of, you know, feedback loop of new resistance mechanism, broader spectrum drug, new resistance mechanism, broader spectrum drug, coming up with alternative methods to address this challenge. 
I agree with uh, Romney. I, I do think it's there are many challenges. Um, I think we know that antimicrobial resistance is a big threat and one of the biggest threats of our time. Uh, and this is recognized by the CDC and the World Health Organization. But I, I think what one challenge is we still don't understand the sheer magnitude of this threat and really understand the issues around it. And so I think we need, first off, increased surveillance as well to kind of track resistant infections to make sure that reporting is more reliable and so that we can understand ultimately the sheer magnitude of the problem to begin with. And I think Romney kind of alluded to this, but it's although we have some novel antimicrobial agents coming up the pipeline, the pipeline of new antibiotics currently is really inadequate to address the current threat that we're faced with. And so we need further incentives uh, for pharmaceutical companies to start to develop newer agents. The federal government has been working to create those incentives, but we need more. Unfortunately, what we've observed recently is some companies developing agents to try to treat some of these more multidrug resistant organs organisms that after they go through the investment of these clinical trials, they go under afterwards because when these new agents are developed, we try to reserve them for when they're for appropriate use using antibiotic stewardship programs, which really hinders their return on investment. I'll just say certainly what's been going on past five years or even the the past few decades is I've seen a shift from organisms that were more often associated with specific patient populations that were either multi-drug resistant, three or more classes, extensively drug resistant, six or more classes, such as Pseudomonas aeruginosa in cystic fibrosis patients, given their chronic exposure to antibiotics, to cases where we can identify single mobilizing vectors, uh, plasmids, even transposons, that with a single genetic event can make the recipient strain multi or extensively drug resistant. And we find these vectors not only in patients, we find them in sewer systems, we can find them with colleagues uh, working in agriculture or other areas. So these are really becoming broadly disseminated, not only clinically, but in you know a major aspect for food safety, a major aspect for environmental monitoring. So a lot of evolution that's been going on as we've been using a lot of antibiotics to make it more readily possible to transfer drug resistance to naive strains. And I think that's contributing to a lot of the problems we're, we're seeing currently that Trish and Romney have alluded to. It certainly further highlights the need for additional drugs that we can use, but also I can't emphasize enough the surveillance to be able to understand where the reservoirs are so we can actually do something at the source to prevent further spread. Well, I think you make a really good point that I don't think is addressed enough is that antimicrobial resistance is such a widespread problem and it touches on multiple industries, right? It's not just healthcare that needs to worry about this. It's agriculture, it's pharma, it's all of these industries that need to be concerned with this. Yeah. And understanding, I mean, and we really have gone a long way in understanding how interlinked it all is. Um, you know, this concept of one health, right? Understanding that what happens in agriculture, what happens in veterinary practices and what happens to humans are all sort of very much linked. And so, you know, I think in some instances, it's unfortunately too late for some of these drugs um, and some of these organisms. Um, but, you know, there's still opportunity to turn the ship. It'll be difficult, but there's still opportunity. 
So in the US, what are the current fears with regard to emerging antimicrobial resistance and what is the likelihood of their emergence? Well, I mean, I I can start again. So, you know, I think that the fears are what we've all experienced, which is, you know, dealing with patients that are generally very compromised patients who uh, acquire hand drug resistant infections. Um, it's an unfortunately not that few and far between, you know, and what's interesting over the last couple of years is, you know, if I point to my experience when I was at UCLA, I can remember, you know, having our very first hand drug resistant Klebsiella and we wrote up the case and it was a big deal um, back in 2009. Um, and by the time I left UCLA in 2017, we were seeing those every single week. And so these things spread very, very quickly, and it's very difficult to manage them. And I think, you know, in, in some ways, we've been a little bit fortunate that these really heavily multidrug resistant infections often are, um, you know, associated with uh, patients that have had a lot of healthcare exposure, or, you know, there's risk factors, I guess is what I'm trying to say associated with them. And yet, we are starting to see these crop up in people who you wouldn't normally have expected to have them. And I think that's the really scary thing, this idea that somebody, um, you know, otherwise pretty healthy, pretty young. I mean, we had a fellow who uh, was in a motor vehicle accident come in and uh, subsequently develop a pan drug resistant infection. I mean, that's really the, the very scary thing to deal with. Yeah, I agree with Romney. That that's, you know, my answer too is just pan drug resistance. Um as Romney pointed out, you know, it used to be rare that we would encounter those scenarios, but now it's becoming more and more frequent where we're continuously on the phone with the clinical teams, can you help us out? What else do you have available? You know, what can we try to test to be able to try to treat these infections? You know, we're encountering scenarios where there are no longer any good options. So we're like throwing the kitchen sink to just try to eradicate the infection. And to me, that's very scary. It's it's scary because it's happening more and more frequently and there's no magic answer to stopping that threat right now. You know, there's not one thing that we know exactly what to do to prevent its further development and spread. And so I'm exactly the same scenario that Romney expressed as my worst fear as well. I think I'll, I'll just add that there's cases where we're seeing high drug resistance in organisms we normally wouldn't think of as being very virulent like uh, Staphylococcus epidermidis, like Carini species, but increasingly in very immunocompromised patients who don't have an immune system or the appropriate uh, mucosal barriers to defend against it, these organisms, they can develop severe pneumonias, they can develop sepsis, and they're incredibly difficult to treat because they do become so innately drug resistant. We also see many examples of multi-drug resistant organisms being in the community. So community acquired MRSA, we've seen this also with uh, Clostridioides difficile, where interaction with a highly vulnerable patient population, we've seen this in NICU babies, we've seen this in immunocompromised individuals, being immunocompromised are picking up these strains and then getting uh, ill from it. So in the community, it's not necessarily making everyone sick, but they're reservoirs. We've also discussed there's other reservoirs in the environment and agriculture, et cetera, but frequently it's in the most immunocompromised patients where you are seeing infections develop and ones that can be quite difficult to treat because these organisms are so antibiotic resistant. 
Right. Like you're going around in nursing homes and, and stuff like that. I do want to touch base a little bit, kind of a follow-up question that I feel like lay people maybe don't really appreciate what we're talking about here in terms of a post-antibiotic era in that it's going to like change the way we practice medicine on a really broad scale. Can you guys talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I guess, you know, post-antibiotic era to me is exactly the the worst fear that we were discussing is these pan-drug-resistant infections, meaning that all of the antimicrobial agents that are available to treat that particular infection are resistant and, and they're no longer options available for therapy. And so this becomes where before we would use antibiotics to treat and eradicate infections so the patient can get better and go home, we no longer have those options. And so that's a post-antibiotic antibiotic era where where we have these difficult scenarios where there's no other options to treat these patients with these pan-drug resistant infections. Right. So an infection that maybe would have been relatively easily addressed um, turns into, you know, something much more difficult. I mean, I alluded to our first pan-drug resistant club case at UCLA. That was an individual who came in with influenza pneumonia. Um, he was young, healthy, no pre-existing medical conditions, and um, he developed this, you know, really resistant Klebsiella sepsis and pneumonia. And he was hospitalized with us for 185 days for that infection. He was ventilated. None of us thought we'd be able to wean him off the ventilator, but I think because he was relatively healthy to start with, he actually was able to do to wean off the ventilator. And he came to visit us um, maybe four or five years after his incident infection, you know, kind of to talk to the team that had saved his life. And he was so gracious. He let us take a swab to see if he was still carrying that bug. And sure enough, he still was. So, you know, these are things that the next time that fellow may develop an infection, next time he has to go into the hospital, that's something that's very, very concerning. And I, I think from the patient perspective, most are used to when they get diagnosed with a particular organism that's a microbe, they'll receive a script saying, oh, pick up this antibiotic to treat your infection. So imagine you you are diagnosed with an infection, your physician is saying, there's really nothing I can use to help treat it. You just have to wait and see. And if something bad happens, it's not like you're going to wait this out at home. You may need to be hospitalized. It it can escalate quite quickly. I think even before that too, is just some oral options are no longer available for urinary tract infection. So something that, you know, you could easily go to your primary care physician and get an oral script for might not be available and might require IV antibiotics because of resistance out in the community. And so one CDC study recently that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine, I think it was in 2020 or this year, where they showed that most multidrug resistant infections are either decreasing or stabilizing but extended spectrum beta-lactamase producers has increased. And the main driver behind that was through community uh, spread and reservoir. So back to Lynn's point that we need to be worried that, you know, the typical patients that we see these in, we're seeing further issues. And then when it comes to, you know, a urinary tract infection to go see your clinician, the easy treatments are no longer available. Right. This idea of just getting a dose of Bactrim or getting a dose of Bacrobid and and being fine no longer applies, right? These things are becoming more and more resistant. You're going to need a full workup to find a drug that is going to help treat that infection. Right. It's sort of the idea, I guess, especially in, in the Western world, we've 
become really accustomed, right? Like it's like, oh, I've got a UTI. It's not a big deal. I'm going to, you know, be on Cipro for 10 days and it's going to be fine. But it's entirely possible within the next decade or two that that's not a thing that's just going to happen anymore. This is, no, if you get a UTI, it could be life-threatening. But yes, (laughs) it's a little scary. So now I'm going to go on to my next question. As I briefly mentioned before we started recording, I worked on the uh, micro bench for several years. So this next question is pretty near and dear to my heart. For the laboratory professional, what are the main challenges and the potential solutions to the workflow in microbiology that um, are created by antimicrobial resistance? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, it's funny. We recently went through a quality improvement initiative in my lab uh, talking about urines. And we were saying maybe we could auto sign out like the pan susceptible E. coli in urine, right? This should be the number one. There aren't any anymore. There's no such thing as a pan susceptible E. coli, which means that the techs on the bench really need to be reviewing every single one of those hundreds and hundreds of E. coli that we isolate every day, looking at that susceptibility profile, looking to see if things make sense, confirming things, da, da, da. I mean, for those of you who sit on the bench or you know what I'm talking about, it can be really extensive to understand how to work up. And yet, you know, this is so foundational. The only way that we can track this is to be able to detect it. And the only way we can detect it right now is by having good lab testing. And so, I mean, probably ever, the only good way we can detect it is through having good lab testing. And what that means these days, still for the most part, is culture-based methods and and phenotypic susceptibility tests. Um, And so I think, you know, while we're seeing improvements as far as better ability to detect these organisms, we're seeing some movement, good progress, I would say, with the FDA on standardization with other groups like CLSI or um, the European group UCAST on what the definition of antibiotic resistance is. We're still not quite where we need to be, in my opinion, um, as far as being able to really accurately detect these things in a streamlined manner. I think I'll also add that resistance doesn't stand still. It's constantly evolving. So we are dealing with organisms that where they are today, they're going to be different in certain ways in six months or a year. And it's not uncommon. It can take a couple of years for CLSI and for the other groups to catch up with new with new breakpoints, uh, being able to look at antibiotic combinations that you want to be able to use clinically. So internally, we have a lot of back and forth with our infection control teams and looking at population trends and resistance to see if we can identify problem areas. But I think having a more proactive approach, including sort of multi-institutional surveillance efforts to understand where is new resistance arising and being able to have more rapid response in terms of how we improve our phenotypic testing, how we may incorporate molecular methods to get more accurate information out there. Yeah, it's a great point. I mean, Trish mentioned, you know, the incentives needed for pharma to improve antibiotic development. And that's equally true in diagnostics. And, you know, the tricky thing with diagnostics is you go through the entire process of getting your new test to market, which is a a huge investment. It takes many, many years, only to find, lo and behold, some new resistance mechanism has emerged in the interim, and your test that you've spent the last five years developing is no longer clinically relevant, right? That's a very difficult situation. Companies and the FDA are not used to this rapid cycling through to detect different resistance mechanisms. So that's one thing I think we can get a lot, a lot more maybe creative about how to, how to approach it, um, but it certainly is challenging. 
Yeah, I think, and to add to that, I think some of these diagnostics are not cheap to rapidly detect AMR. And so we really need studies to show the clinical utility and outcomes that prove that we need these for patient care and that help incentivize administration to want to have these tests in place because they're normally adjuncts and not replacement tests, meaning that they're in addition to what you already do. And I think along those lines, we've been lucky to have many new methods for detection of AMR be introduced over the last 10 years. But as I mentioned, a lot of them are, are not replacements, but an additional test to add to the menu. And so it adds complexity to the workup and requires more un- understanding from the bench technologists about mechanisms of resistance and the associated phenotypic antimicrobial susceptibility testing profile that should be associated with those mechanisms of resistance. And so I really think that that becomes more complex for laboratory professionals professionals who aren't normally used to understanding all the different AMR genes and what they mean and what they translate to phenotypically. But a solution from the laboratory standpoint is to uh, make sure that the technologists at the bench understand the diagnostics being implemented, create job tools for them to understand, and what are the expected phenotypic results associated with an antimicrobial resistance gene detection And then if an unexpected result occurs, um, how can they troubleshoot that and what what they should be questioning? Because it all comes back to making sure the clinicians keep the faith in these diagnostics that you're bringing in, these likely more expensive, and also to prove the utility for patient care as well. So. So despite our best efforts, many patient deaths in hospitals, regardless of their primary diagnosis, are due to infectious complications. So how is this related to antimicrobial resistance and what are some potential solutions? I'd say it's multifactorial. Uh, Some of it is these patients are quite ill. And so when they get infected with an organism, particularly one that's difficult to treat, it adds morbidity and mortality to this particular patient population. We also have organisms like C. difficile, which are frequently triggered by the use of antibiotics antibiotics. In fact, it's the most prevalent hospital-acquired infection. So even using antibiotics within the hospital setting can put certain patient populations at risk for getting this very severe infection to cause pseudomembranous colitis. So a combination of those who are entering the hospital, their comorbidities, whether they're immunocompromised, whether they have other conditions like diabetes and whatnot that are both going to make them more susceptible to infections, also make it more difficult to treat infections. And then you add the dynamic of the organism's innate resistance, which only increases the complexity of trying to implement effective therapy for these patient populations. And then I think Lynn highlights the the problem very nicely there, but I think the microbiology lab in terms of solutions to tackling antimicrobial resistance in the hospital is strong communication between microbiology, antimicrobial stewardship, infection control, and hospital epidemiology. If the micro lab detects a resistant, resistant bug or resistant mechanism that they don't normally see in their hospital institution, um, it should be a 
red flag and they should automatically be talking with infection control to make sure that they mitigate the spread of that organism because of the vulnerable patients there are present. You really don't want it to set up shop in your hospital. Um, it could be difficult in, in particular for certain pathogens to eradicate them. And then of course, always working closely with your stewardship team on how you can implement new diagnostics or methods or add comments to your reporting to try to direct clinicians to appropriate therapy in certain scenarios. Romney, do you have anything to add? No, I mean, I was just sort of reflecting on, you know, how the statement is so true, right? So many patients are admitted to the hospital for some primary diagnosis, and then infections are, are complications of that, right? And in some ways, it's one of the things that makes it difficult to advocate for and really get a lot of lobbying efforts behind, um, you know, better tests, better diagnostics, newer drugs, all these things, right? In fact, these are, these are complications of the primary diagnosis. And so it is kind of interesting. And in some ways, it does make it a little challenging from, like I said, like a lobbying perspective, unlike some, you know, disease states where that is your primary diagnosis, you get a lot of patient advocacy behind it, a lot of clinician advocacy. So it is an interesting challenge. I want to take a deeper look into the emerging data for a little bit. What are some of the most worrisome resistant signatures to watch for and in what organisms? I could start that one off. There's like a massive list, you know, as I was thinking. <laughs> I know, there. right? It's like, oh yeah, just, just pick five. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, what do I want to start with? But I'll start with an area that I'm most familiar with and it's resistance and gram negatives. And so carbapenem resistant gram negatives, whether that be the enterobacterales or your Pseudomonas aeruginosa or your, or your Acinetobacter baumannii. And in particular, when looking at carbapenem resistance, it could be broadly divided into non-carbapenem mediated and carbapenemase mediated, I think our biggest concern there is carbapenemase mediated. And it comes down to a lot of what Lynn mentioned earlier is the ability to easily transmit the resistance mechanism among species genera of different gram negatives. And so they're just easily spread. And then thinking about carbapenemase producers, uh, we've luckily had many new beta-lactam agent combinations come down the pipeline that have allowed us to treat serine carbapenemases, so like your KPC producers, but they don't cover, many of these don't cover the metallobetalactamase producers. And so what we've been starting to see a little bit more of as of recently is the, you know, introduction of metallobetalactamase producers like NDM or among our enterobacterales or VIM among our Pseudomonas aeruginosa, which is really concerning to me because it really limits the treatment options available there. So I'll start there and let Ron Omni and Lynn add. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's, of course, that's my answer to Trisha. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, I, you know, the way I, I look at resistance too is I talked to the lab about it is there are some things that are really, really difficult to detect very hard. Um, and then there's some things that aren't so difficult and, and you've got to get really crispy about being able to identify those quickly, be able to rule them in or rule them out. And so to me, even though it's not a new thing, things like being able to differentiate methicillin resistant staph aureus from methicillin susceptible. I mean, being able to do that quickly, being able to do it very accurately. I mean, that's such a key function and really, it makes a tremendous difference to that patient's management, right? You know, the other thing that comes to mind, which is maybe a little less new, is ESBL production, right? I mean, so yes, carbapenem resistance is super scary. It's very worrisome. We need to keep our eyes on it. But 
most of us still see mostly ESBL type producers. And depending on where you are in the world or in the country or even in your state or even in your city, your rates may be very, very different. And so being able to detect those key resistance mechanisms accurately and quickly, because that's what really is going to drive use of these escalating levels of antimicrobial. And so, you know, in some cases, we worry more about undercalling resistance than overcalling resistance, but in my mind, they're equally important. So yeah, I'll, I'll pause there. Certainly when we get into the genome structure of these organisms, I mean, for instance, if we're flagging an organism based on phenotypic carbapenem resistance, it's not uncommon if it has a carbapenemase that we are finding plasmid vectors with transposons that have jointly mobilized resistance to fluoroquinolones, or they're carrying chromosomal determinants that provide that resistance. The plasmid vectors with transposons are providing resistance to tetracyclines, to aminoglycosides, to macrolides, to so many drug classes. So again, you've accumulated all this combined resistance, even though what you were initially focusing on was what you think is the worst, the carbapenemase. But in fact, altogether, it's a pretty bad package. And it's not just chromosomally what the organism is carrying, it's these mobile vectors that with now a single conjugation event, they could potentially make a naive uh, strain highly drug resistant. And we've seen multiple cases where a patient comes in with a particular carbapenemase producing, say, Klebsiella, and then a little while later, we culture it out of E. coli or Morganella or Intrabacter species. In fact, we find the Intrabacters are quite good at being reservoirs for holding all these plasmids and potentially transmitting them to other organisms. So it's really a problem across multiple antibiotic classes that we'll see harboring in both particular genetic vectors, but also chromosomal determinants. And the phenotypic testing the lab does is, is critical. This is highly functional information to say, in spite of everything the organism is carrying, here's where you can actually see the phenotypic resistance. So pairing that with the molecular data, looking at Across populations is what can really help inform not only care for the individual patient, but with infection prevention, start to look at trends or techniques to be able to address the broader problem. Yeah, it's a really interesting idea, this idea of, you know, not an organism specifically or a, si a single strain causing an outbreak, but like a plasmid causing an outbreak. And we've certainly seen this at multiple facilities and it's somewhat described in the literature, but it can make it really difficult using traditional infection control kind of prevention techniques where you're still kind of looking at one bug, one resistance mechanism. But in fact, if that resistance mechanism is hopping between different species, even we had one case where we had a KPC producer hopping between Enterobacterales, but then even out of that group of that order into um, Aromonas species causing the same outbreak as the same plasmid. It's a, it's a very different way than how we traditionally look at these things. Yeah, they can definitely be tricky to identify as an outbreak in those scenarios, right? That you have a problem somewhere in the hospital that you need to address. And yeah, we see both scenarios as well. Very, these, you know, they're very happy to share their resistance plasmid with each other if they need to. And yeah, oftentimes we'll recover, you know, similarly to Lynn's situation is um, different organisms harboring the same plasmid that they just shared under the selective pressure of therapies. Again, it's kind of this vicious cycle that we find ourselves in is that we have to use these 
bigger treatment options to try to combat these resistance, but then they're they're fighting it off and evolving to try to address the threat themselves. And it's amazing how smart the bugs are and how quickly they could evade those treatment options. And so it's um, to me why antibiotic stewardship is so critical, especially with these new agents that get introduced. Um, And then I guess adding to the list on top of what we've already discussed is an email that we just might have all received if you get the CDC updates is the pan-resistant, echinocannon-resistant Canada auris in the United States. So anything from your bread and butter, normal organisms that you encounter to the lab becoming multidrug resistant, but also some of these sexually transmitted infections like Neisseria gonorrhea. Uh, we've been seeing really multi-drug resistant mycobacterium abscessus infections in our CF populations. And so I think, unfortunately, the list is quite long of what you know we need to be aware of and need to start addressing. It seems like we're just kind of talking about bacteria, but also, you know, like yeast and fungi, right? They're in the mix and certainly acid-fast bacteria are in the mix here. Can you guys Talk a little bit about that, just because I know like fungi and and acid fast bacilli, obviously, they're slower growing organisms. Maybe we can't get susceptibilities as quickly as we would like. Can you guys touch on that a little bit? I mean, I think one of, at least in my perspective, one of the biggest challenges too is just unifying definitions on what constitutes resistance in those organisms. Um, It's been a little bit elusive. Developing the clinical correlates of understanding, you know, this minimum inhibitory concentration to this drug is predictive of drug failure or success. I mean, that's very difficult for these, these organisms. And so with that as a background, being able to then detect and track resistance is is somewhat complicated. The good news is I think we are getting a lot better at it. I mean, if you look at even five years ago, most labs weren't doing candida susceptibility testing. And now I feel like most are starting to at least look at that. And so I think that there is a lot of progress but you know, if you look at the, the fungi in particular, this is an area where we have huge diagnostic unmet needs because it's one thing if we're able to recover the organism and culture and do a test on it. But I mean, that's sort of like the lucky scenario. I feel like a lot more often these patients have um, suspected fungal infections, but getting a really clear answer from the diagnostic testing can be very challenging. Yeah, absolutely. Like I said, I've been off the bench for a while, but whenever I left the bench, my laboratory that I worked at didn't do susceptibility testing on on Canada or any yeast or any fungi or any acid fast. It's sort of like at that time, it's sort it was sort of like, oh, you have X. It's we're presuming it's susceptible to to Z, and that's it's been less. I've been off the bench less than a decade, and that's certainly not the case anymore. Yeah. And I think with the mycobacteria, we're seeing, because of what you say, it's, it's true that the time to grow these organisms is so lengthy. Um, we really are seeing um, a departure from phenotypic methods more to genotypic methods or genomic methods. So uh, mycobacterium tuberculosis is a great case in point where in a lot of areas of the world, we've transitioned you know, completely away from a phenotypic susceptibility test and we're doing it all by genome sequencing. And I think that's possible with those organisms because they're a little bit less plastic than the bacteria that we deal with, these rapidly growing bacteria that are you know, sharing plasmids and getting mutations and all these things. We just don't see that um, happening on the same time scale with the mycobacteria as we do with routine bacteria. So, I mean, that's another really exciting development. I think it'll be great to see where it goes and how it progresses in the next, you know, five to 10 years. But, um, you know, there is a lot of really good progress being driven in that area. 
And then certainly along those lines, just the availability of the testing to particular labs. So can they run it locally? Are they able to contract with a reference lab? Because for many of the slow growers, it may be methods that most labs, even micro labs, aren't necessarily set up to be able to run internally. Uh, is this something where they can work with their local Department of Public Health or potentially with, with a reference lab to do it? With the genomics, again, that's a very high level of complexity. It's not quick. So at least it still isn't quick. Again, if you're dealing with a slow grower, it may not be the slowest thing for you to get an answer, but it's still something that's not readily available to most laboratories in a day-in, day-out basis. And again, we've seen a lot more adoption uh, through the public health system, and so having more effective connections and ways for local hospital laboratories and laboratorians to be able to access this information so they can get the answers, not only have it flow to either a reference lab or a Department of Public Health, but ensure that the data is flowing back to the lab for what they're finding. Because with almost every genomic set we've done, we've been able to use that information to help inform the phenotypic testing that we're doing within the laboratory. And that's only really possible because we're all based within the same laboratory. I've seen many cases where when the lab is separate from the group doing the genomics or the more complex testing, it's a little more difficult to get that necessary sharing of information so you can benefit what is actually happening at the bench at the primary lab. An important point to highlight to labs is to definitely have, you need to have plans in place when you encounter these multidrug resistant infections. If you don't offer these newer antimicrobial agents for testing, as Lynn had said, you need to have a reference lab that you need to have available. You need to start to think out your plan when you encounter these multidrug resistant organisms, because if you haven't encountered them very often in your lab, you're going to, unfortunately, and you need to be prepared with a protocol, whether that be that you're going to do reflex testing internally with a new validated method, or you have a reference lab in place that you know you can send out to, and you need to work closely with your stewardship, infection control, infectious disease practitioners, etc., to help you create that plan. And you're, of course, your clinical microbiologist. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and it should be in place well in advance from when you need it, because when you need it is not when you want to be scrambling to find out where you can send these things. Exactly. So what efforts nationally or globally can laboratories participate in that will combat emerging resistance and where can we make the biggest impact? So just think contributing to the surveillance programs that are occurring at your state level are always very helpful. Um, I think as we go back to addressing the challenges that we have to address the threat of antimicrobial resistance is to have accurate data. So if you could support your state health and local public health labs to um, gather that surveillance data, it's definitely something you can start to contribute to. Yeah, and I mean, to that end, as far as accurate data goes, I think the most important thing individual lab students, Trisha's smiling, she knows what I'm going to say, which is get your breakpoints up to date. Um, as Lynn mentioned, CLSI is usually a couple years behind the emerging trends, but if you're a couple years or even a decade behind where CLSI and the FDA are, you are way out of date. And it's very, very, very difficult to track these things if you're getting, you know, sort of different data levels coming in. We do know you'll miss about a third of carpapenem resistance if you're using outdated breakpoints. Um, and this is true for any drug you might pick. So I think for people listening who are, you know, working on the bench or in charge of a lab or supervising, I mean, that is the biggest 
take home, I think it's, you know, the data you're contributing, you want it to be as accurate as possible. And the best way to do that is to get your breakpoints updated. I segued that one for you, Romney. I knew yeah, that was. I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I I agree wholeheartedly with Romney and have had the opportunity to work with Romney on some of these initiatives to really bring this point and educate to the clinical labs the importance of updating your breakpoints. I, I think a lot of people just assume their automated instruments are updated, and that assumption is incorrect. So you need to go and look at what breakpoints your automated instrument is using and start to think about a plan to update them. And I'll just add certainly opportunities for laboratory professionals to participate directly with CLSI, to participate in ASM. I think we're all members of Division C and ClinMicronet. The College of American Pathologists also welcomes both MD and PhD microbiologists to participate in their lab accreditation and other committees. For groups that are doing genome sequencing in CBI out of NIH, we'll receive genomes and make them publicly available through their pathogen detection resource. And there's been a lot of effort in the past few years to update this daily. So you could literally communicate recent genomes and within a 24-hour period know if they're clustering with others from your region. We've had ones where we've rapidly identified these are patients that came from an international source. So if you are generating genomic data, there's now a lot of good international resources in the U.S. and in Europe and elsewhere to be able to participate near real time in active international surveillance. Yeah, I got to echo that, Lynn, because I I think some of the most valuable information we gather sometimes at our CLSI meetings, our ASM meetings, is the bench-level technologists, right? We need your input, and if you're interested, we would love to have you come and volunteer and help us out, because I feel like a lot of the times we might be making decisions by overlooking a workflow or, or, you know, something that the bench-level technologists just provide critical information to help us guide care, or just how common it is you see certain things is always very helpful to have the bench level technologists involved. And certainly to also be involved in lab accreditation. So visiting other labs, seeing how they're performing, do the assessments, that's a critical part of being a laboratory professional. Absolutely. I'd also want to make a a plug for the CDC Antimicrobial Resistance Lab Network. I know many people may not be aware of the services that they provide, but it really is very excellent. Um, If you Google it, you'll find um, a lot of resources, including testing some of these newer combination agents, like Trish mentioned, the metallobetalactamase producers, they have the ability to test um, kind of forthcoming combinations of drugs that might be very helpful. They also do a lot of surveillance and sequencing um, to track these, not just outbreaks, but just the, you know, endemicity of a lot of these really resistant organisms. And so it's an excellent resource. I think it's like slightly underutilized at this point in time. Um, And so I, I really think that it's something we should all be taking advantage of to the best of our abilities. Yeah, I would definitely try to reach out and try to figure out which is your ARLN lab and try to understand what they have available to you. Because as as I was mentioning earlier, have a plan in place to address these multi-drug resistant organisms to do additional phenotypic antimicrobial susceptibility testing. Well, a lot of these will offer them free of charge and have a pretty good turnaround time offered to you if you are in communication with them. So I definitely think that's a, an important resource to highlight too. And I think the other thing I'd mention is, you know, don't be afraid 
to leave the lab walls, you know, step out, attend a stewardship meeting, attend an infection control meeting, get involved at your institutional level. We are, or you all are the experts when it comes to the lab testing. In many cases, the microbiology department is sort of the institutional expert when it comes to antimicrobial resistance mechanisms and understanding them. It's a really valuable resource that uh, we all provide to our individual hospitals. And so I think sometimes we're undercapped a little bit as far as, um, you know, having a seat at the table and, and the best way to get that seat at the table is to invite yourself. So that's always the answer, right? Like what? I'm not invited. I'm, I'm inviting myself. Sorry, I didn't know. <laughs> Let me crash the party. Here, I'll sit down. <laughs> um, I think another thing, uh, maybe not nationally or globally, but just at your own hospital is to start to embrace diagnostic tools that help you more rapidly detect antimicrobial resistance. So again, start working with your stewardship team and your infectious diseases and PharmDs to try to understand what are the most important diagnostic tools or resistance mechanisms that should be implemented to help manage patient care uh, more rapidly and get them on appropriate therapy more promptly. Well, it's sort of like that maxim, right, that all politics are local politics. This is kind of the same thing, right? Like, obviously, antimicrobial antimicrobial resistance is a global problem, but you got to tackle the problem locally in order to really gain any traction. Absolutely. Yeah. This whole concept of antimicrobial resistance sounds just really stressful, to be honest, and it sounds a little dire at times. So just wondering, is there any hope? Could you, like... Can we end on a positive note? Is there any, yeah, is there any hope? <laughs> yeah, I was thinking that too when we were talking about our, our resistance uh, threats. I think there's a ton of hope. I think that, you know, we as a country and locally, as well as even globally, you know, the eye is on this at this point. I mean, we understand that this is a pressing issue. Um, and so there's a lot of resources being put into it. I think, you know, antimicrobial stewardship is not something that was really widespread even a decade ago, and now it's in every single hospital, in every single outpatient practice as well, right? We're really pushing this out. And so I think, you know, the smarter we get about using these drugs, the better it'll be um, as far as uh, sort of slowing the tide of resistance. But again, it's like anything, we need to stay vigilant and keep our eyes on it and, you know, make uh, interventions when interventions are needed. Um, a lot of it is infection prevention and control. A lot of it is antibiotic stewardship and, you know, wrapped up in all of that is the diagnostic side of it. So. Yeah, although we have some work to do ahead of us, we've made a lot of progress. And going back to that report that I was discussing, the CDC data, with a lot of initiatives and efforts over the last uh, decade or so, they're actually seeing stabilization or decreasing prevalence or incidence of some of these multidrug resistant organisms. So there is definitely some positives that are coming out of all these efforts, but we just need to keep on top of it. And I'll just add, let's not forget about prevention. So it's not just announced, but it can really do a lot to not only reduce, but also halt spread. And we really have quite robust tools, tools we did not have a decade ago, that can tell us what the drivers are of resistance, where the reservoirs are within the hospital, as well as outside the hospital, 
This information is huge because it can direct important targeted interventions to reduce those reservoirs, to reduce exposures, to halt spread. So I think we're going to see a lot more with these One Health initiatives looking at ways to identify the reservoirs and come up with combined approaches to be able to either eradicate them or certainly reduce spread. So that stewardship, as we've all mentioned, that's dealing with not only the, the clinical scenarios, but also considering what's going on in the environment, going on with agriculture and in other areas. And with these combined integrated views, we'll have a much better understanding as to what's going on and what we can do about it. All right. Well, thank you for giving me and our listeners a little bit of hope at the end of a fantastic discussion. And I've learned a lot from all of you. So thank you for participating. Absolutely, guys. Thank you for participating. I also want to tell our listeners to tell your colleagues about the podcast and don't forget to subscribe through your favorite podcast aggregator. And as always, don't forget that you can receive CME and CMLE credit for listening to our podcast by looking for Inside the Lab in the ACP store on our website at www.acp.org.